If you find yourself in the West Village, in Manhattan, crossing through the intersection of Bedford and Grove, you'll almost definitely see people craning their necks, snapping pictures, and gazing up at the seemingly ordinary apartment building on the southeast corner. Why are people taking pictures in that house? But don't be alarmed. There are no exhibitionists, vigilantes, or jumpers up there. Just a brick-and-mortar reminder of a bygone television era that sounded like this. I knew it! <laughs> I'm standing outside of the friend's apartment, and I'm not alone. I'm coming from Montar, South Jersey. It's two hours further down from here. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of friends from about five, ten years, I think. I love friends, and I just wanted to get the view of this place to have that feel is amazing. It's really cool, right? Pretty excited about it, and you know, watching the show. Oh my goodness, this, this, and seeing the building here now, it's just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> it just bring, brings back all the memories, and yeah, it's so cool. If you were, um, if you were a cast member on Friends, the character, who do you think you'd be? I think I would be Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> There's a restaurant on the ground floor of the building, right where that coffeehouse Central Perk would be, hypothetically. Here's Maggie Hollinsworth, a business manager at that restaurant, The Little Owl. Okay, so most people that are coming to look at the Friends building, they are supremely disappointed when they find out that this isn't Central Perk. Like, it blows my mind. It's like, it was filmed at a sound studio in, on Warner Brothers. Like, it's not here. It's just the, in the B-roll, it's this shot. So I always tell people, stand over at the light post, look up, that's the shot. So we had um, a couple get engaged here. Um, the guy rented out the restaurant for an hour, and then he hired a professional singer to sing the Friends theme song. Did he say yes? Of course, okay. yes. <laughs> Happy ending. I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. On today's episode, we're diving into homes that became famous through iconic pop culture moments, the complicated reality of living in them, and what actually drives people to base their travel plans around buildings they saw on TV. We have the story of two real estate agents who were tasked with selling one of the spookiest homes in film history. I'll give you a hint, it involves a well, some lotion, and a very terrified Jodie Foster. We have an interview with a woman who recently purchased one of the most photographed pieces of real estate in the entire world. But first, what happens when a famous house becomes a little too famous? The small town of Astoria, Oregon has grappled with this problem of trying to balance a tourism boom fueled by 80s film nostalgia with the privacy of their residents. Here's our first segment, The Goonies Conundrum. All right, so Andy, before we talk, you got to do the truffle shuffle. Oh, I was already doing it. <laughs> I just can't see. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that, that's been my new um, core workout is just doing the truffle shuffle for half an hour every day. It's, it's really quite, quite impressive. That's how the guy who played Chunk got so buff. Is he buff now? Yeah, he's, he shrank down. Um, he's, he's a good looking chap. He's an entertainment lawyer in Beverly Hills. When I mentioned the theme of this week's podcast to pioneering fitness guru and Thrillist senior travel editor Andy Kreza, he slacked me two things. The words Astoria, Oregon, and a gif of Chunk from the Goonies doing his fat kid dance. It's Astoria, Oregon, and it's kind of like this pearl for especially like 
80s and 90s kids. You've got Free Willy, Kindergarten Cop, Short Circuit. Like these are all kind of flash in the pan cultural touchstones where this small blue collar fishing town on uh, the coast of Oregon really kind of plays a central part. So it became a, almost a vortex of uh, certain adolescent experiences for a lot of kids. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And yeah, I lived in Portland covering film for like almost 15 years. And so I made my way out there quite a bit. Astoria is 90 miles north of Portland on the upper left-hand corner of the state. It's the oldest city in Oregon and, coincidentally, where Lewis and Clark ended their journey across the United States in 1806. More importantly, for our purposes, the town and its surrounding area have served as the setting for a ridiculous amount of cult classic movies. Short Circuit. Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten is like the ocean. You don't want to turn your back on it. Don't worry, everything is under control. Free Willy 1 and 2. In a world where beauty is held captive. Miss your family. Go, Willy, go! Point break. You're trying to tell me the FBI is going to pay me to learn to surf. Twilight. You'd think with all that that the world would lose its power to seduce, but you'd be wrong. So many more, but most famously, the Goonies. The treacherous traps. Hello, Sheriff. I'm at the Lighthouse Lounge, and I want to report for a murder. Immediately, my mind was made up. I would track down and speak to the person who owns the infamous house from the Goonies, where Mikey and Brandon lived, where they found the treasure map hidden in the attic. I googled it, and it's exactly like you remember. The faded white paint, the wraparound porch, Data's house right next door. It was like seeing my childhood flash before my eyes. But there was one big problem. Yeah, and it's complicated, right? So when you think of the Goonies, the two images that come to your mind are going to be the big rocks on the ocean and the Goonies' house. The major difference between those two things is that those rocks are on a public beach. You can go and do the truffle shuffle in front of those to your heart's content. This is a piece of private property. The current owner and resident of the Goonies' house, let's call her Mrs. Walsh just to protect her privacy, wasn't going to take my calls. She wasn't going to indulge any questions about tourists shuffling their truffles outside her front porch. Apparently, all the attention given to the house kind of reached a boiling point. She put up signs turning Goonie fans away. She brought up the issue with local government. She even tarped over her windows at one point. Goonies never say die, and apparently, that can get pretty annoying. I think people like to, to paint the owner as almost this like Mr. Perkins level villain who's like trying to keep kids off her porch. But when at all hours of the night you've got international tourists running up on your porch and dancing with their shirts off, that's kind of a bit much. And this isn't this isn't like a a movie house like most of them, like the Christmas story house has been purchased and made into a museum. This is still very much a private residence. And the fact that it's the major MacGuffin of this hugely popular movie probably makes life really, really difficult. But if you don't want people to visit your house, why would you live in a famous house? The answer is complicated. Hello, Will. Hi, is this Judith? It is. How are you? I am so good. How are you today? I am good today. 
This is Judy Nyland. She moved to Astoria 45 years ago, and she absolutely loves it. And it's just, um, it's a charming and real working man's town. So that's the thing that has always attracted people to this area. It's not, it's not phony. It's not, um, it's not like bubblegum arcades and things like that. If you've seen Kindergarten Cop, she painted those big murals at the grade school. And she also lives right down the street from Mrs. Walsh's famous house. Before the um, COVID this year, I would see literally 50 to 100 people a day walk by my house. Wow. And I have a very short block. It's really two blocks long. And um, when they had the Goonie anniversary on the, tw- the 25th anniversary, this would have been the 35th anniversary that they had to cancel. They had 10,000 people in three days come to this street. 10,000. And that's, that's larger than our population at the time was. So that got, that's when everything kind of got blown up because people just got crazy. It was like, they were like kids in a candy store and they, they just, some people weren't nice. It was a minority, but they weren't very controllable. And that's when the people who own the home and the neighbors up the street from me really started putting their foot down and getting kind of upset about it. So this isn't like a handful of fans looking to get a good Instagram story. We're talking about thousands of people coming into this neighborhood looking to relive their favorite movie. That can be problematic. And I think at first the owner of the house was into it. She knew what she bought. She was a big Goonie fan. She used to bring people in for tours. And then somehow it ended up getting on Google Maps. Because we ran into a guy about 10 years ago who was walking down the street and he's like, Where's the Goody House? And we pointed it out and he said, you know, you couldn't even find this 10 years ago or five years ago. It was like blocked so that no one could find it. But the second it was on everybody's GPS, then people were coming out of the woodwork. Then it's like, let's go to the beach. Oh, we got to go see the Goonie House. And one time I saw an RV go up the driveway and fall off the edge of the road, like onto its side down into the ravine. So, you know, it's just people, they just get out of control. Yeah, I see some tourists up there right now. I'm watching them walk up. While Judith says the overwhelming majority of Goonies fans who come from all over the world are perfectly lovely, she even sells her artwork to them from her yard, there have been incidents like the one she just described. Things were stolen from the exterior of Mrs. Walsh's house. People knocked on the door in the middle of the night and blocked her neighbor's cars in their driveways. People even peed in the flower beds. But see, when Mrs. Walsh purchased her home, things were a little different. It was before the internet gave everyone with a cell phone access to her address, and before the town of Astoria started fully embracing these legions of goons. My name is Mac Burns. I'm the executive director of the Oregon Film Museum in Astoria, Oregon, home to the Goonies and hundreds and hundreds of other movies. And naturally, Mac has a lot of insight as to why this region of America is such a popular filming destination. Um, The state can be anything you want it to be. It can be the ocean, it can be mountains or just a few miles away, high desert, Uh, we can be another planet. Um, You know, Black Beauty was one of the movies that had a little bit shot here in Clatsop County. Uh, We're a South Pacific island in the part of that movie. Uh, The beach is near Gearhart. So we can be anything. And uh, we really, as a state and locally, um, we've gone out of our way to facilitate that because we, we like the industry and we, we like seeing ourselves on film. 
And this is especially true of the Goonies. The city is like another character in the film, and it's a real point of pride for historians. You remember when Judith was talking about the Goonies anniversary celebrations? Well, they are a surprisingly big deal. And by the way, Goonies fans, the film museum is inside the old jail that Jake Fratelli breaks out at in the beginning of the movie. I don't have to handle open the lock! It's cool. There's a wonderful woman in England, Andy, that uh, had been talking with other folks online, and they just all of a sudden said, hey, wouldn't it be fun to all meet up on the day the movie was released in Astoria? And they contacted, Andy contacted the local Chamber of Commerce Visitor Center, and the lady there named Regina, who's a Goonies fan, said, well, that's kind of cool. So the Chamber of Commerce and Regina quickly put some things together, scavenger hunts and 80s nights and trivia and things like that. The population of Astoria is 10,000, and that first year for the 20th anniversary, we had about 6,000, 7,000 fans in town. We opened the Oregon Film Museum in time for the Goonies' 25th anniversary. That was our opening weekend. And uh, attendance that year was about 12,000 in a town, again, of 10,000. And we try and make a big deal out of five-year anniversaries. So the 30th was just nuts. Um, it probably had about 15,000 fans in town. Since 2005, July 7th has been Goonies Day in Astoria, drawing fans from all over the world. Josh Brolin and Sean Astin and even Richard Donner have been known to show up. Corey Feldman came and played 80s hits with his band. It's like if Comic-Con was dedicated to one movie and also spread throughout a Pacific Northwestern fishing town. And it's good all around, mostly. And, you know, it's that, that mentality of, oh, it's just me, you know, but when you've got thousands of people coming into the neighborhood in a weekend, the, oh, it's just me, is amplified even more. Parking in the neighbor's driveway, because I'm just going to be five minutes, but it's the five minutes that she's going into labor and needs to get in the car and get to the hospital. That's Regina Wilk. She works for the Astoria Chamber of Commerce. She's one of the driving forces between the town's brilliant mission to embrace Goonies fans. She's also been tasked with the extremely tough job of directing and controlling tens of thousands of rabid nerds. In 2015, shit got real. There were a couple just really severe incidents that took place at the house where um, the homeowner finally said, okay, this needs to stop. So that's when she put the tarps up on the porch. She didn't want to do that. She didn't like leaving them up there. She felt like she was, you know, in a prison herself. Um, so they weren't up for too long, but you know, it definitely got the message across because those pictures got picked up and flew all over the internet and really helped us kind of get people to take a beat, think about, you know, what they were demanding of someone um, to give of their personal space and their personal time. And she bought the house in the early 2000s. It was in terrible shape. She's put so much into um, making it livable and then also, you know, kind of embracing the community and trying to share that with the other fans and being a part of the fan group. When we've done the house tours during our event weekends, you know, she is always so gracious and wants to give more and more and more of her time and try to get everyone through the door and give everyone as much time as they want, um, never asking for anything in return. So she's just always been awesome. So um, I think, you know, after the tarps went up, we were able to 
have a little more candid conversation with people and make sure that they understood that, you know, it's not an attraction. It's not situated in a place that it could be an attraction. So we have to you know, be mindful of that, that it is, you know, a real working living neighborhood that you're going to and think about if it was your grandma, um, you know, would you want random strangers knocking on her door at 1030 at night, you know, asking if they can see the attic? Astoria is, in so many ways, the success story of a small town finding a way to embrace its quirky history and bring in tens of thousands of tourists every year. But it's also a cautionary tale of what happens when you buy into a famous house and that fame spirals out of control through forces you can never see coming. The Goonies is the type of movie that inspires rabid fandom, the type of pop culture moment that seems to snowball over time and against all odds become more popular as the years go by. And this whole situation tells us a lot about the phenomenon of famous houses and why we love them for better or worse. Their power is almost always rooted in nostalgia, which honestly can be pretty intoxicating. And Mac from the Film Museum has asked visitors to write down what the Goonies mean to them on little slips of paper. He keeps all those messages. And then I started reading these messages, and they were profoundly moving to me. This was my brother's favorite movie, Rest in Peace, Samuel. I had to come from St. Louis. We're here celebrating being cancer-free. My favorite memory of the movie is watching it the night I, before I go on patrol in Afghanistan, knowing I might not come back. And you start reading, and not just one or two, you read dozens and dozens of these notes. My boyfriend proposed to me on the porch of the Goonies house. I said yes. Or we're here celebrating first anniversary, 10th anniversary, 30th anniversary. We're here celebrating birthdays. I mean, I literally have thousands of these notes 10 years later. And they're funny, they're moving. And it's obvious this movie has had a powerful impact on, on thousands, maybe millions of people. And I think... Part of it is it's a it's a piece of our childhood when things were maybe a little easier and, and that there could be a treasure out there that we could go find and solve our problems. Special thanks to Thrillist Executive Travel Editor Keller Powell and Goonies superfan Michael Barnard, who helped with research for this segment. If you want to plan a visit to the Oregon coast, Thrillist has a four-day itinerary that includes Astoria. The link is in our description. And if you do plan on visiting Astoria and seeing Mrs. Walsh's house, just be cool. Don't ruin it for the rest of us. We're going to take a quick break, but hey, in the meantime, why don't you sit back and learn about some amazing products and services? We'll be right back. In our last segment, we learned to remember that real people often live inside these famous houses. In our next segment, we're going to find out how real estate agents approach selling notorious pop culture homes, especially when they're kind of weird. Thrillist Entertainment staff writer Emma Stefanski has the story. Um, now, we had this sort of idea uh, to maybe begin this segment of the podcast with you guys sort of doing like a, a walkthrough of the house, like the way that you would be selling it to a potential buyer. So the land itself of the property is gorgeous. Yeah. That was Eileen Allen and Shannon Assad, two realtors of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, who are known as the sisters sold it on social media. 
It's like a time capsule. It has just a ton of the original woodwork with the hardwood floors, the big tall ceilings. This fall, a property fell into their laps, one that was pretty unique. A lot of the famous movie shots were, were filmed right when at the front door and then right when you walk in in that foyer there where Clarice came in and then she's walking from the foyer through the dining room into the kitchen area. Um, and then from the kitchen is the basement door down to like one of the really scary scenes from the movie. Eileen and Shannon had been tasked with selling a Victorian style home in Periopolis, Pennsylvania. Serial killer Buffalo Bill's house from the Silence of the Lambs. Which surprisingly uh, wasn't actually shot in the house. They filmed it on a sound set. But that's probably the number one question that we get. Is there a well in the basement? In the movie, fledgling FBI agent Clarice Starling is hunting a killer whose MO is skinning people alive and using them to sew a suit. This is the house where it all went down. So Eileen's actually afraid of scary movies. I haven't watched, she's never seen the movie. Never seen it. So if one of them hasn't even seen the movie, what made these two the ideal people for this project? It was a combination of their wildly entertaining social media presence and their willingness to lean in wholeheartedly to this house's spooky foundations. They assigned it to a different agent in our company, but she had a lot happening at the time. And she told the relocation department that she wasn't able to do it, but she said, you should call the sisters, even though their office is a little further, they kill it on social media. And I think they would do a really cool job marketing this house. So we kind of went all in on the whole Silence of the Lambs history. And we were kind of, we weren't sure because we were like, some people might not even want to see it because of that, but we thought there was such a big following, it would work. And it totally did. They posted creepy home walkthroughs on social media, got the story picked up by local news channels, and even designed face masks featuring the moth over the mouth image from the film's iconic poster. So one of the things we did, we wanted to kind of combine the, the COVID situation with the movie and how we were going to do some of the marketing and press release. And so our team, everyone got face masks. And then we and had we a coming picture, picture. We took a picture of our team in front of the house and that was our coming soon. So, yeah. So the face, it looks like the mask or the moth from the movie. The house still looks a lot like it did when the movie was filmed 30 years ago, minus the infestation of moths. So the house, it has always been a private residence and the current owner said he lived there for five years. Almost every week he would have somebody driving by his house, stopping in his front yard next to the railroad track. Um, and they would like be taking a selfie in his yard or they would come and like knock on his front door and say like they were big movie fans and could they see the house. And when he said he still had people coming to his house, I mean, this is now 29 years after the movie. That was, that was really the one piece of information. Once we heard that, that's unreal to have a property off the market for five years and still attract movie buffs is, I've never heard of that. Not only that, the previous owner was a real live undercover FBI agent, just like Jodie Foster's character in the movie, who got his badge the same year the movie came out in 1991. The owner actually, are we allowed to say? Mm -hmm. he, he he's an undercover agent for the FBI. He's retiring, which is why he's selling the house. So he has the same job as Clarice in the movie. And he had, when we go into, went into his office, his like whole like cabinet, FBI, FBI, FBI yeah, picture, it real, it was, his it hat is. So it looks like it's staged, but it's all his stuff. The only thing we brought in was the uh, poster. poster. Now, 
no serial murders were actually committed inside the house. There isn't even a well in the basement. All that was filmed on a soundstage. But it does have some documented paranormal activity. And I don't know if you guys have ever had to do this, but I know that like when you sell a house in which like a murder has been committed, it sort of has to be disclosed. Was there ever that sort of sense of like, this house has sort of been the site of like this very creepy thing that like we should mention or? Oh, well, no, no, but. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a story yeah. that we have about that. Yeah, you don't have to disclose if there was um, a murder in the house. Okay. And, but we, we kind of question, asked him that. We were yeah, like, the question that you just asked, we asked him when we first went there. And he told us a story about right when he closed on the house, his first night in the house, he went and got his air, his his blow up air mattress. He was he was going to sleep in the family room that first night. Um, and how did the story? Well, and he said he had yeah no furniture. He had a blow up mattress, and he went to sleep. And then about like two in the morning, he felt like there was somebody in the room with him. And then all of a sudden, he had he was like sleeping. He had this dream of like this lady grabbing his face, and it woke him up. Woke him up. And then he said his cat got all scared and like ran out. And he's like, it was really creepy, but I just, I felt like there was somebody there, a presence in the room or something. And then about a year later, he was going through stuff in the house and he found these old papers and like cut out newspaper. And it had a picture of the original family from the 1800s. And as soon as he saw the picture, he was like, that's the lady that came to me in the dream. He just knew it was the wife of the original owner. Oh my God. This is like, this is like the conjuring. This is, (laughs) (laughs) well, the history of the house is a little creepy. Eileen and Shannon didn't think for a second of shying away from it. In fact, the Silence of the Lambs connection became the main selling point. We thought we were going in 100% relating it to the movie, and then maybe six months, if it didn't sell, we could kind of do a new like kind of marketing campaign and push it out again and talk more about the being like set out in the country the and like the historicalness yeah. of like the house being over 100 years old. But 100% going in, we were like, this is so unique. We have to leverage this. We have to, like, yeah. And it worked. A ton of people were interested, and not just fans who wanted to tour the house for fun. So we did not do a public open house, but I think if we did, it would have been just out of control because the amount of people that were sending us messages online, we have people messaging us saying, we're coming from out of state, we just want to see the house, we're movie fans. And this is still somebody's, like, private residence, he lived there. And yes, they found a buyer who has some very exciting plans for it. So he actually works in the movie industry and he lives out of state. So he saw the house through just marketing we did, drove into Pittsburgh to see it. And he is going to be turning it into kind of a business. So he's going to live there sometime, but he's going to actually kind of convert it to a place that movie fans can come visit, take tours. He is going to turn the basement into a scary basement that looks like from the movie, put a well in there. And um, he's going to be teaming up with Airbnb so that people can stay there for like the 30th anniversary. So he has a ton of plans. Um, He works with movie props. So he's going to like make props like people from the movie. So when you come and tour the house, like it feels like you're there from the movie. Um, So kind of our whole vision of hoping to find somebody that loved the movie went above and beyond. And we're so excited to kind of follow along with what he's going to do and work with him next year uh, to help promote the house for movie fans to come see. We're certainly ready to book a two-night stay, just maybe not in the basement. We've got one more story after the break. 
The Victorian homes off Alamo Square in San Francisco, commonly called the Painted Ladies, are some of the most famous and photographed real estate in the entire world. Think about the opening credits from Full House or like every postcard from San Francisco ever. Producer Mia Fask has always wondered who the hell actually owns these absurdly picturesque homes? So, she called someone who does. So I'm Leah Culver. I live in San Francisco, California. I'm a software developer. I actually run a small podcast app company called Breaker. Um, I'm originally from Minnesota, but I moved here, oh my gosh, almost 15 years ago now. Um, so I've been in San Francisco for quite a while. Does anybody actually yeah. call it San Fran? No, that's, no, the locals don't call it San Fran. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, like, um, and who hasn't been to San Francisco, what are the Painted Ladies? So the Painted Ladies is actually a more general term for Victorian houses that were painted in bright colors. So in the 60s and 70s, it became a trend to take these Victorian homes and just give them wild colors and, and like three or four colors that all kind of like go together in a nice way. And these specific painted ladies that we're talking about today are on Alamo Square Park. Um, and they're sort of famous because they're right across from the park and they're known as Postcard Row. So there's all sorts of photos of them. And you get, if you take a photo, you can also see like City Hall and the downtown of San Francisco in the background. So it's just a really, you know, beautiful photo uh, opportunity. So what, um, and you kind of just answered this, but what drew you to the Painted Ladies? So I was looking to buy a home for about a year and a half. I looked at different houses all over San Francisco and I was planning to buy a move-in ready home. So something totally finished, so I could just live in. And this is sort of my first home, um, but I didn't really love anything that I saw. And I was talking to my um, real estate agent. I was like, I really would love to live in like a famous San Francisco home, like one of these beautiful historic Victorians. And when this home came for sale, right in the middle of Postcard Row on Alamo Square, I just, I was just blown away. I was like, I have to have it. One thing I got to bring up is uh, is Full House, just because I feel like that's what people kind of associate with the painted lady. Oh, definitely. <laughs> And the intro and that kind of thing. And I guess my question for you is like, how many people, um, how many visitors that come by would you say are, you know, just kind of like there for the historical, like visual aspect of the Painted Ladies versus like the Full House fans kind of thing? Yeah, well, so of our generation, I would say that there are a lot of Full House fans. So what's interesting is the Postcard Row and Alamo Square, the park are featured in sort of the intro where they're like having a little picnic in front of the Painted Ladies. But the actual home that they, the family lives in, like the, the front facade is a different house. It's 1709 Broderick Street. So it's, it's fun. There's a ton of tourists that come by every weekend. Um, but also a lot of locals use Alamo Square just as their local park. Um, so it's a pretty popular park as well. When you first realized that you were going to be living in one of these houses, how concerned were you about like your privacy? Were you kind of nervous that people would be like clamoring on your yard mm -hmm. kind of thing? I lived for 10 years in apartment on Dolores Park, which is the most popular park in San Francisco. Every weekend, it's like there's a huge party in the park. Um, people come out and they set out picnics and it's just 
from about noon to 4 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays, which is wild. So I'm very used to sort of having people be basically in my front yard. Um, and being inside the houses, um, the windows are thick enough that there's not a ton of noise or anything like that. I want to talk also about the Twitter account that you started and how you're kind mm -hmm. of um, documenting this renovation process. I think it's so cool that you're kind of a doing this because I'm sure a lot of people are very curious about what the process is, is like, and it kind of almost feels collaborative, like you're inviting people to join along. So mm -hmm. what, yeah, I guess what made you want to share the journey with people of you renovating this house? Well, as soon as I was seriously considering it, buying it, and I knew it was a fixer-upper, so it wasn't my intention to buy a fixer-upper, um, but, you know, the current state of the home, it just needs a lot of work. I started the Pink Painted Lady Instagram, Twitter, Facebook account because as a resident of San Francisco, it's something I would want to see, right? Like I'm super, everyone is super curious about these houses and what they look like. Do you feel like a, a certain sense of pressure because like the house is so lovely to like make everything perfect and like, you know, you just want everything to be exactly right? So the exterior of the home is going to stay exactly the same. Not going to change at all. It'll probably get a fresh coat of paint. Um, it'll probably be a bright color of pink. So by law, um, in San Francisco, you can paint your home any color you like. So, <laughs> um, so one of the funny things I like to joke about is that some people here paint their entire Victorian completely black. So there's several around town that are just solid black. So what would you say through the whole process, what's been like the most difficult part for you? Currently, it's it's sort of making sure all of our plans fall into what's legal in San Francisco. Like there's a lot of restrictions on sort of how these homes can look that keep it keeps them all sort of looking nice. Yeah, it's just been wild. Like I think I'm surprised at how many people are really passionate um, about these houses. Yeah, totally. It's like uh, they, they themselves have this own their own fandom almost. They do. And, and I, you know, I'm a fan too. The reason I bought one is I've always just thought they were so cool and so pretty. And yeah, if once COVID times are over and I'm in San Francisco, I'm going to hit you up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me an email or stop by. Leah, where can people follow along on your journey? You can follow along at Pink Painted Lady on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. All right, that's it for us. If you have any gripes, stories, recommendation, praise, or corrections, call our podcast hotline 1-833-POD-BABY and leave us a message. And yes, we're totally serious and we would love to hear from you. Next week, we have our Thrillist Guide to Los Angeles. But until then, listen to me thank producers Jake Rasmussen and Mia Fask, editors Dean White and Abby Austria, Overall excellent people, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Daniel Byrne, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hadakudor. Since you made it to the very end of the episode, here's a quick fun fact. Sean Connery was the first choice to play Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. How weird would that be, right? Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>